Welcome to Econ Talk, coming to you from the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University. If you have comments or feedback, send email to roberts at gmu.edu. You can find more Econ Talk at www.econtalk.org, along with readings and links related to this podcast. My guest today is Gary Becker, Professor of Economics and Sociology at the University of Chicago. Gary was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1992 and is perhaps the most creative economist of, I don't know, the last 50 years, the last 100, just, a, I suppose, a matter of taste and judgment. He's written widely on the economics of crime, discrimination, and the family, and he received the Nobel Prize and has made his mark in the profession for extending economics to such an enormously wider range of behavior than merely the financial, and uh, it's a pleasure and honor to have him on the show. Well, good to be here, Russ. Gary, I wonder if you could start by talking about the influence of your work on on economists. When you first started writing on the diverse topics that you've written on, uh, there was a lot of skepticism of the value of economics applied to these areas. Over time, my perception is most, if not all, of that skepticism has faded, but I'd be interested in your perception of how the profession has received your work and then uh, used it. Well, there's no question that initially there was a great deal of skepticism, starting with my first study and book on the economics of racial discrimination. Uh, it had, I would say, the first decade, it had virtually no influence on what economists did, although it did get very favorable reviews from uh, some well-known economists like Melvin Reeder and um, Armin Alchian, but it had uh, had virtually zero impact. Then all of a sudden, economists discovered the importance of racial and other minority questions, and from then on, I think the book has been very well received and highly cited, etc., and its impact uh, exploded. That applies to a lot of the other topics I worked on. Um, the first, I would say, in the, it started discrimination in the 50s, published in 57, did human capital in 1964, allocation of time in 65, crime and punishment in 68, uh, then in the 70s, economic approach to human behavior, and then in the 80s, treatise on the family, and then uh, paper on addiction with Kevin Murphy. And what I perceived over this time was that in the 50s, the 60s, and half the 70s, most of the senior members of the profession at the major institutions were kind of very skeptical or very skeptical about what I was doing. Um, I certainly didn't get a lot of office to join any of the major departments. I got almost none. I was at Columbia and at Chicago. But in the 70s and then the 80s, I, I began to notice the younger people, the PhDs coming out of places like Harvard, MIT, Stanford, Princeton, take a few examples, uh, were very young guys, were much very interested in what I had been doing. And I, I noticed that difference. Even when their faculty, their old, older people who were teaching them, were still uh, on the whole negative. So I think there was that major change. And now, I think on the whole... Um, you're absolutely right. There's been an enormous change in acceptability of working on a lot of these problems. Um, a lot of young economists and other economists are working on such problems, and even some problems I would consider extreme. And um, the only 
point I would make is in the Nobel citation, they did mention favorably human capital discrimination and um, the allocation of time, uh, but mentioned that their work on the family was still controversial. Hmm. Well, that was 1992. Right. I think it's less controversial than it was at that time. How did you find that uh, emotionally, having written those papers, those books, and I'm sure you were proud of them, and to find them dismissed uh, as – I think dismissive is another word that would describe the way some of the senior people yeah. in the Profession Act treated them. Uh, How would you deal with that? Well, there were two factors involved. One, that a number of my teachers, like Milton Friedman, George Stigler, wasn't literally a teacher, but I got to know very well, and uh, Ted Schultz and Greg Lewis were very positive about it. And since I had a great respect for them, the fact that they were positive, even though they had their doubts about some parts of it, but were generally very positive, uh, was a great deal of support. Because that went with another feeling that it seemed to me was pretty obvious I was right uh, in the sense that these were problems that one could attack and one could make progress or whatever limitations one could make significant progress. And economists, it was a major oversight the economists were in dealing with it. So that self-confidence, if you will, combined the necessary ingredient that some people I respected enormously supported me on it enabled me to handle the neglect or dismissive aspects of it reasonably well. I can't say I was always happy about it. When I saw people, I thought my work, to be frank, was much better of getting more recognition and more offers and all that sort of stuff. But um, I felt it would t- my time would come. And patience is a virtue. <laughs> well, it worked out. I mean, I have no complaints now, but it certainly... I had to have that kind of, if you call it inner strength or self-confidence or whatever, buttress with the support of people. And I have to emphasize that. I had that great inner strength, I think. But if you know, if, if people like Milton Friedman and George Stigler and Ted Schultz thought what I was doing was garbage, it would have been very discouraging. Fortunately, they, they didn't, and that was a tremendous help to me. And Milton spent a, had a similar period in the wilderness where oh, long one. he had to <laughs> accept the fact that he felt he was right, and the profession uh, rejected him. Absolutely. Now, a lot of people misunderstand economics. They see it as a um, dealing mainly with money or financial matters. But, of course, the economic way of thinking is really about choices and behavior. What are some of the, um, the insights of that approach that you think are the most powerful when applied to these non-financial, non-monetary uh, areas? Well, there are lots of them. Uh, let me just give you a few examples. I just got in, had an interview yesterday. I'm going to have one after this. From somebody from Chile talking about crime, which has been a problem of concern in Chile, and how does one combat crime? And there are still many intellectuals and others who believe that somehow the crime is a social problem, that criminals are alienated, they don't have enough education, or not a, uh, jobs aren't available. And those factors are relevant. But in terms of fighting crime in the short run, you're not going to make much quick progress by trying to reform the educational system or uh, reducing alienation. And so I always say in the short run, one has to think of the deterrence variables like apprehension, conviction, and punishment. And the, the, the fact that these do seem to work and, and significantly influence people's choices. And I think we now have abundant evidence 
supporting that, uh, was and still has met with hostility in, in a lot of quarters. Um, and that's, so I would say that was an, uh, a lasting insight of the economic approach to crime and, and punishment. Let me give you another example. In the area of discrimination, uh, I emphasized and recognized that there were a lot of prejudice against various minorities. I concentrated on on, uh, blacks um, in my study, uh, but I also mentioned a little about women. Uh, But I also tried to say, well, but to understand what goes on and what we observe, it's not simply people's prejudices as count. It's It's a way markets and governments are organized, it also have a big influence on what we observe. And in particular, that in competitive industries, it doesn't mean you won't end up with any discrimination, but com- competition tends to undermine discrimination by giving an advantage to those firms, for example, who are not discriminating, who, are, who look at minority members objectively in terms of their productivity, not in terms of preconceived feelings about them or attitudes about their productivity. And those people have an advantage over the prejudiced entrepreneurs and therefore will tend to expand and prosper relative to the others. And I think that it's an insight that comes out of the analysis, I think, has to be continually emphasized. So yeah. These are a couple of examples. I can go on with more, but well, here's, here's a couple. You mentioned markets. Could you talk for a minute about the rich way in which you use that term. A lot of people think of a market as a place where fruit gets bought and sold with vegetables or the you know, the New York Stock Exchange where stocks are bought and sold. But economists think of markets in a much richer and, and deeper way. You, for example, have written about the marriage market. Right. Um, what do you mean by that term, given well, that people aren't literally bought and sold? It, it, the word market is, is a metaphor, but it's a valuable metaphor we're describing a, situ- a situation where there is certain types of things being transacted, like forming a marriage. There are people directly or indirectly who are competing for, uh, say, a sp- the same spouse, uh, men and women, um, uh, uh, who men are competing against each other and women competing in part against each other, and they're trying to form a match that they'll both get a lot of satisfaction out of. Not necessarily, or primarily, the money part is to come back to your earlier point, but, you know, how happy they'll be with the person involved, whether they're in love with them or not, whether that will be lasting, and so on. And so you look, the market means that you look for an equilibrium. market is associated with the concept of equilibrium, where people form matches and different people in different matches can change their match and make them both better off because if they could do that, they would change their match and divorce is partly that and they would uh, and this wouldn't be an equilibrium. So uh, marriage as the essential economic and even social attributes of what a market is, even though you don't go anywhere and you say, I, I pay so-and-so much for that person or, or she pays so-and-so much for me and we form a union. And obviously, there's some of that indirectly through dowries and the like, but mainly it's just people forming relationships, uh, uh, which is what business markets are. It's a particular type of relationships of varying durabilities. And, and you see that in the marriage area. You see that in the crime area where the transaction isn't even voluntary, at least in the marriage area. 
in some sense, it's always even when parents chose. It was a sense in which, at least for the parent rental point of view, it was voluntary. And certainly in modern marriages, people voluntarily enter into these these choices. Crime isn't voluntary on the part of the victim, but nevertheless, you can think of a criminal market where there's a supply of actual and would-be criminals and a potential victims, and there's a transaction, not a voluntary transaction, but you don't have to restrict economics to voluntary transactions. That's another thing that people don't often see. When we go back to the marriage market, yeah. uh, one of the insights of the uh, economic approach would be how behavior between men and women as they approach and, and make marriages is affected, say, for example, by the sex ratio, the proportion of Absolutely. men and women. So talk for a second about that. I think I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, people are people. They just treat each other. If they're nice, they treat each other well. If they're not nice, they don't treat each other well. But the economic approach says that how well we treat each other is a continuous variable and responds to these larger forces. Absolutely, because in a marriage, you, you want to fall in love with, with somebody. So where you believe, you know, there's a little altruistic attitude. But there's also some sort of division of the of the uh, result of the marriage in terms of uh, how, how much power as people like to use in the marriage, how many goods they have, and and what decisions are made, how many children they have. There may not be a uniform opinion about that between a husband and a wife. Typically, in many societies, wife wants fewer children than the husband because the wife is the one doing the raising of the children and delivering them, and there's the hard work involved. And Therefore, you ask the question, well, who has the power, uh, who has gets more of the resources, more of the decision-making? That's a function of variables like the sex ratio. So a number of studies now show when, when you have a decline in the number of men relative to women, let's say as a war that kills a lot of men-soldiers, men, men then uh, the power of men goes up, and measured in a variety of ways. They, they tend to marry earlier, they tend to have... Uh, serial polygamy, they marry more more often than not, more women stay unmarried, um, and in, in more detailed measures, the, the men uh, do a lot better. And so that's the sex ratio is one of the variables that determine how well people do, but it's a, more than that. You know, if you come into a situation with a lot to offer, like a lot of human capital, a lot of earning power, then... You can, first of all, you have better choices. Um, a rich person may, in a second marriage or first marriage, marry a very beautiful woman and um, will be able to command uh, some uh, behavior on the part of the spouse. There, in marriages and other things, there's usually not a free lunch. You, I mean, there's a, a transaction going on. Or on the subject, you mentioned earlier, contrast between the what might be called the sociological or cultural approach to crime versus the economic approach. If you look at the uh, change in the status, the economic status, the financial status of women over the last 40 years or so, as their labor force participation has increased so dramatically, the the cultural view is that there was a cultural revolution, a social set of social forces called women's liberation. It changed the way women felt about the workplace and they surged into the workplace as a result. Uh, how would an, an economist uh, talk about that differently? Well, you know, the, the women's revolution may, may, may have had an impact, but I would approach the problem so, uh, so, uh, differently in, to a large extent. 
because there were important forces that were leading women to be more active in the labor force and to um, to work more, to have fewer children for going down. That would occur even in situations where women, the women's revolution, female power has been much weaker, like in Japan. Uh, birth rates in Japan are a lot lower than that in the United States, for example. Um, and why? Because there's been important force in the modern economy encouraging families to have fewer children and to invest more human capital in terms of education, training, and health each year a child. In Japan, par excellence, is a country where that happens, although women don't participate so much in the labor force, they have few children and they spend a lot of the time investing in the human capital as mothers of, of their children. And, and so it's well known that the Japanese mother is like what used to be called the Jewish mother in, in the United States, who hovers over a child, makes sure they do the homework, drives them around for extra lessons and, and the like. So that occurred even in societies where the women's live movement was very weak. Uh, the fact that women in general, started working much more was in part the result of having fewer children, had more time, part higher, much more education than in the past, so they were better prepared to earn more in in labor markets. Uh, in part, the divorce rates increased, so women had to think, well, they they may be ha- happily married now, but in five years they may have to be on their own, and therefore they want to have a job. For these and other reasons, women went much more into the labor force. Their earnings have risen steadily for 20 years or so relative to men, not equal as yet in the United States, but, but much closer than they used to be. Their positions have been rising, maybe not as fast as one would like, but they certainly have been rising in, in every single field. Um, and you know, that may have been helped along by the women's movement, on the other hand, and I think it may it has was helped along by the women's movement, although that was not the major force. But you also have to think of the women's movement and as in part a response to these other forces right. that were increasing the economic earnings of women, their educational level, giving them more time, and therefore encouraging more writings about the role of women and what women should be, and then the interaction among. Here I would put a social force that if you're an educated woman who wants to stay home and just raise your children in an environment where all the other educated women or your friends are working, you feel a bit uncomfortable about doing so. So I wouldn't exclude those forces. In fact, I think the uh, orientation of some of current economics is to combine social and economic forces into a field that we've named social economics, where you, if these social forces are there, but they, they have to interact with the economic forces. We talked earlier about how economists uh, perceived your work. How about people in the related social science areas of sociology and anthropology? How's the reception been there for these types of approaches? Well, generally negative, um, with exceptions, of course. So in sociology, there was a great sociologist, a good friend of mine, James Coleman, who was very sympathetic to to this, and he was a leader of, of a branch of sociology called rational choice sociology. But it was a small branch, and um, it's still a small branch. Uh, most sociologists were not highly sympathetic. On the other hand, 
I've been proud of the fact that in a poll among sociologists of like the 20 most popular books and significant books in sociology in the last 20 years, 50 years, I'm sorry, a treatise on the family ranked like 15th or so. I'm surprised. So, Very uh, nice. Um, that was a surprise to me. So it shows the book has had a significant influence in sociology and more sympathy among some sociologists than one might think. Nevertheless, I think it's true that overall, the field of rational choice sociology is is not by any means, is a minority field, a really small fraction of people in it, and there's a lot of hostility to sociologists for that general field, not just to economists doing it, sure. but even to people like Coleman and others who, who do it. It's been less true in political science. In political science, there's much more of a mainstream approach using the economic tools of constrained maximization. Absolutely. And political and science, uh, particularly many of the younger political scientists, have learned some economics and uh, uh, game theory and are using these type of tools and trying to study collective choices. And that they're probably the group in political science that are in greatest demand at the major institutions. Any thoughts on why there's such a big difference? In political science and say sociology? I don't have a a good answer to it. I've thought a lot about it. You have to realize that sociology in part started as a reaction against economics. Compt, Durkheim, some of the early leaders said sociology is going to study things that economists have gotten wrong or neglected. And so there's a there's a history in sociology of tremendous hostility economics, that their field is partly defined as doing things differently than economists do them. And I think it's been hard for sociologists and people going into sociology to rid themselves of that history, uh, hysteresis, so to speak. Um, on the other hand, I think what uh, the, 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 so, sociology is paying for that in the following sense. A lot of young people now are deciding what field they can go into they notice that they can work on a lot of interesting social questions by going into economics and learn the tools that give them greater ability to do that theoretically or empirically. More, and while in sociology, they would neither learn the tools nor would they face sympathy. A lot of them who in the past might have gone into sociology, I believe, are now going into economics. Shifting gears, uh, a few years back I heard you talk. There was a symposium in your honor at the University of Chicago. And you got the last word, which is uh, fitting. And one of the things you mentioned was the influence. Someone may have asked you a question or you brought it up, but someone, you talked about the influence of other economists on your work. And I think to the surprise of, of many economists, you mentioned the first two economists I think you mentioned, or at least prominently mentioned, were Adam Smith and Alfred Marshall. Could you talk about how Smith and Marshall influenced your research agenda in your career? And well, I would say the most important influence is Milton Friedman. Let me, I forgot what I said at that time. But <laughs> so did I, probably. Maybe I was talking, thinking of historical people. Um, I mean, I, I want to reiterate, he had enormous influence on me. Coming to Chicago was was a great thing for me because of Friedman and others, Ted Schultz, and then eventually George Stigler wasn't at Chicago at the time. But if I look at the more of the historical people, um, what I like about Smith, and still do, I mean, Smith was clearly in my judgment, the greatest economist who ever lived. What Smith did was he took a very broad approach to behavior. Smith's definition of economics included discussions of why 
education at Oxford was so bad. Uh, it basically, he said the teachers, the way the teachers were paid, didn't give them the right incentives. Right. You got to pay them more on a piece rate. Um, uh, he discussed religion, how to ref- how to solve the re- problem with the colonies. Um, uh, give make the eventually he thought give the colonies representation in British Parliament, and eventually the center of gravity would shift. He said to America, a pretty good, a clever insight on Smith's part. Uh, he discussed a whole host of questions, why we have usury, and so on. So Smith took a broad view, broad approach to economics, didn't stop it at you know dealing with material things, but thought the techniques of analysis that we applied in one area could be applied over a wide range of behavior. And so that's, the, and I think he did it extremely well with enormous insight there and also in his book on the theory of moral settlements. So um uh, Smith was um uh, from my point of view a uh, a great uh, uh example of how to try to do things um so he had that influence. Now Marshall Marshall he he took a more narrow view in economics in fact his definition of economics was the study of man in the ordinary business of life so you say that's that sort of smacks like materialistic, and it was. Depends what you mean by business, though. <clears throat> Pardon me? Depends what you mean by, yeah, you meant I by know. business. Uh, I always that, felt I, the way, if you read him, he, he mainly discussed things much more narrowly than Smith did in terms of the areas he discussed. But Smith, uh, Marshall innovated with a lot of tools that we use in economics, you know, elasticities of demand, supply and demand. He wasn't the first one to discuss that, but he used them very well. Utility theory... Um, externalities, uh, long-run and short-run costs, increasing and decreasing returns. So he he built a lot of tools to make economics an engine of analysis, a phrase that he used and um, and Milton Friedman used, uh, saying that for Marshall, an engine of analysis, not in terms of its sort of intrinsic beauty, but as a way of analyzing actual problems. That was Marshall's great achievement, and um, I think it was a great achievement, although he's not studied any longer. Maybe everything he taught us has passed into the textbooks, but um, I read a lot of Marshall when I was a graduate student and and was impressed by the number of tools that he developed that we used to this day and he you know he wrote the principles of economics at the end of the 19th century so it's lasted a long time it's either extremely encouraging or extremely discouraging <laughs> well it's a mixture of both <laughs> yeah well I, we have a few minutes left i'd like you to talk if you could about that encouraging and discouraging part there, there's an enormous part of economics that is timeless the role of markets mm-hmm. the role of prices the role of incentives Costs, etc., and it it doesn't really get improved, or or we can we can find new ways to explain it. We can find new examples to apply it to, but that corpus of economics is 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 complete in some dimension. What is incomplete? What out there do you feel are the still interesting questions? And what advice would you give to a young person who's going into economics? Huge number of questions that we still have very inadequate answers to. Absolutely huge. Um, in fact, as I look at what we accomplished in economics, it's 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 good. It's interesting. It's important. Yeah, and economics is a 
I believe, a much better field now than in, when I entered it in the 50s because of a variety of contributions of different people. Uh, but nevertheless, there are lots of areas we just have very limited understanding on, which there's still enormous uh, countries versus over because either the data are limited or our analytical understanding are limited, why countries go to war, which which groups manage to get political power. To take um, a, a couple examples, um, how competition operates among nonprofits compared to profit-making. If a higher education, 70 or 75% of undergraduates are in state-run schools, yet they compete, how does that... Now we have some private institutions, nonprofit too. How, how does this competition differ from that of um, competition among profit-making companies? And I can go on and on with problems that is sufficiently not well understood. So when a young person says, oh, all the easy problems were taken already, uh, my answer always is, they didn't look that easy before they were uh, uh, sort of attacked. And there are a lot of problems that will look easy now out there once people get a good understanding. What we're missing is the insights into these problems, but there are plenty of things we don't understand. So you're optimistic for the uh, future creativity of the field? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the field is cumulative. We've made a lot of progress. I think we'll make a lot more in the next 50 years. It's hard to predict what directions it'll go in, but uh, it'll take people who come along with insights. Yes, I think the field will be a lot stronger field in 50 years than it is now. Well, I think we'll stop on that cheerful note. I, I want to thank you for your time. Okay. And, uh, well, thanks glad, for joining us. Glad to be here with you.